Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good afternoon, uh, or good evening, good morning, wherever you happen to be. I want to welcome everyone to uh, LSE's online events platform. My name is Peter Tribowitz. I'm a professor in the International Relations Department and director of the Fallon United States Center uh, here at the LSE, which is hosting um, today's uh, event. Today's discussion is part of the US Center's public events lecture series. And it gives me great pleasure to introduce our speakers, Professor Paul Pearson of University of California, Berkeley, and Professor Kathleen Thielen of MIT. They're here to talk about their new book, American Political Economy, um, Politics, Markets, and Power, co-edited with Jacob Hacker and Alexander Hertel Fernandez, published by Cambridge University Press. This is a major effort to revive the moribund study of American political economy, drawing on insights from fields ranging from American politics to comparative political economy, uh, to public policy. And we were keen to get them to join us to talk about the book and how it might help us better understand uh, this historical moment uh, in the United States and, and possible paths forward. Uh, briefly, by way of introduction, uh, Paul Pearson is the John Gross Professor of Political Science at the University of California, Berkeley. His teaching and research interests span uh, the fields of American politics, comparative political economy, uh, public policy and social theory. He's the author or co-author of numerous articles and books, including Winner-Take-All Politics, How Washington Made the Rich Richer and Turned Its Back on the Middle Class with Jacob Hacker. In addition to his many um, academic writings, uh, Paul writes actively about public affairs for venues such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, and the New Republican, New Republic. Uh, Kathleen um, Thielen is the Ford Professor of Political Science uh, at MIT and a permanent external member of um, the Max Planck Institute for the Study of, of Societies. Her work centers on the origins uh, and evolution of the political economies of Western democracies. She's also the author of many articles and books, including the award-winning Varieties of Liberalization and the New Politics of Social Solidarity. Former president of the American Political Science Association, Kathy has received many other professional honors and awards, including an honorary doctorate from the LSE. A few words about format um, before we get started here. Kathy and Paul will get us started with a 25 to 30 minute summary of the book and its core arguments. We'll then open it up for discussion. We've left plenty of time for questions. So please don't be shy. You can send your questions to us via the Q&A function on Zoom and I'll do my level best to put as many of them as possible to, uh, to Kathy and Paul during the discussion period. So normally at this point, I would ask you all to put your hands together to give our speakers one of those warm LSE welcomes that we are famous for. That of course is not possible. Today. So in lieu of applause, I encourage you to pose questions in the Q&A period. Kathy and Paul, welcome to uh, LSE's online platform. It's really great to have you with us. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, thanks so much, Peter, for that introduction, uh, as a, and, and also just for this, uh, for this 
opportunity to talk to you guys about the, the work that we've been doing. Let me go ahead and, uh, and share my screen here. Um, Sorry, I managed to. Okay, so somebody give me uh, a good th You're thumbs good. up. It's got it. Okay. Um, okay. Well, um, the first point of the book uh, is that you know this book is really a team effort, and as Peter mentioned, uh, we're Paul and I are only half of the of the team actually. Um, the team also includes Jacob Hacker and Alex Hurdle Fernandez. And actually, the, the book itself was a, an even bigger uh, team effort because we were able to solicit contributions from an absolutely extraordinary uh, group of comparativists and Americanists, uh, including David and Lucy Barnes and maybe others who are, uh, who are here today. So by way of background, uh, the book is really kind of a centerpiece of a broader project, uh, which is being funded by the Hewlett Foundation, and where the goal is really to try to cultivate, you know, a new field within political science that is really specifically devoted uh, to understanding the interaction of markets and governance or, you know, capitalism and democracy uh, within the United States. The inspiration for the book actually was Peter's uh, really influential volume with, uh, with uh, I mean, David's uh, with Peter Hall, Varieties of Capitalism, which, you know, was just hugely important uh, in kind of shaping the way that we all think about the way that comparative political economy uh, came to be studied. And our goal with this book kind of similarly was really also to try to set an agenda to really reorient the study uh, of American politics uh, in a couple of different ways. First, by really kind of expanding the substantive reach, uh, you know, the range of issues uh, that are addressed. So moving beyond the kind of heavy focus in most of the mainstream uh, politics on American politics that is on you know, elections and public opinion to really include uh, a much wider range of issues we think are centrally important to understanding uh, contemporary politics and contemporary political economic outcomes uh, in the United States. So things like finance, the role of finance uh, in the American political economy, uh, how business interests are organized and how they engage in politics. Secondly, we think it's really important to kind of expand the field of vision uh, in the study of American politics, sort of moving beyond the current pretty heavy focus on Congress and the presidency to really start to consider the full range uh, of venues where extremely consequential political outcomes uh, are getting decided. So the bureaucracy, the courts, which is hugely important, the realm of local politics, all of these are really hugely important sites uh, of political contestation but that we think are really kind of underappreciated and certainly uh, under uh, understudied in the American context. And then third, we wanna to try to extend the temporal horizons uh, in terms of the way that people think about American politics or politics generally, sort of drawing attention to the way in which historically evolved, uh, entrenched institutions and policy structures really operate to constrain and shape contemporary outcomes. Um, and I'm going to talk more about that uh, in a minute. 
So from what I've already said, I think it should be pretty clear that our project draws a lot of inspiration uh, from the really long tradition of uh, research and comparative political economy that is, of course, uh, centrally uh, concerned with studying the interactions uh, of markets and governance uh, in the rich democracies. Um, and like that literature, um, you know, ours is an approach that is methodologically eclectic. Uh, the unifying theme here is not any single method, uh, but really an, uh, an effort to understand the particular patterns uh, of economic governance uh, in the United States. Now, you know, comparative research or comparative political economy has already taught us a whole lot, uh, of course, about variation in the political economies and political economic outcomes uh, across the rich democracies. But we think that there's really a lot more that can be said about the particular dynamics uh, of American capitalism, partly because the US is just a hugely important case, but also because we think it is still kind of imperfectly understood or sort of also understudied even in the context of the comparative research. Now, one of the things that of course pops out uh, of the comparative research is that on a whole lot of dimensions, uh, the US is really uh, an outlier um, and sometimes a, a really extreme outlier. So one kind of obvious example that's kind of drawn a lot of attention recently uh, is income inequality and especially top end. Uh, income inequality. So on the left, you see a figure that really groups uh, a bunch of European, West European countries together uh, to show trends in the share of national income uh, going to the bottom 50%, that's in the blue line, um, and then the top 1%, which is the top, which is in red. Um, and this is all since 1980. Um, and at least at that highly aggregated level, you don't see like enormous changes. Uh, but the picture is obviously really different uh, for the United States. So if you look at the right, you know, you have the share of national income going to the top 1%, which you see has completely taken off, uh, even as the bottom 50% have really suffered uh, a huge decline. But that's really just one example. Um, and there are just so many dimensions on which the American political economy is really pretty distinctive. Um, and it's distinctive in ways that we think is, can be really instructive. Uh, and hold some really important general lessons uh, for political economy of the rich democracies generally. So the components of the kind of approach we're advocating, uh, it really emphasizes features of the political economy that are pretty well established uh, in the comparative political economic research, uh, but not that central really to the way that mainstream scholarship, especially in the US approaches the study of American politics, right? So one, aspect of this is really paying attention to institutional configurations, by which we mean sort of the interactions across different uh, institutions and levels of governance, uh, and also between the institutions of the market and the institutions of governance. So there are just a lot of dynamics that we think the mainstream American research uh, is kind of missing. Uh, partly because Americanists in the US tend to sort of specialize in the study of different institutions. You know, you have scholars of Congress and people who study state politics, people who study, uh, who study the courts. Uh, but an important component uh, of the approach that we're advocating is really to focus on the interaction of political and market actors, not just within, but also across 
uh, this whole landscape across these various uh, venues. So related to this, uh, the approach that we're sort of advocating also pays attention to the kind of coalitional patterns uh, that shape, you know, you know, that, that take form within the context of this landscape. So again, going beyond the kind of dyadic relationship between policymakers and voters, which is really at the heart uh, of so much mainstream American politics, but also looking at the coalitions and particularly the coalitions between parties uh, and organized interests that shape how voter preferences are you know, articulated, whose voices are you know, elevated, whose voices uh, are marginalized and how all of that uh, translates into political outcomes. And then finally, the perspective that we're advocating is one that's really attuned uh, to the fact that the particular configurations uh, that shape political economic outcomes today are, are the product of really long-term developmental pro um, processes. So, and this is more than just the kind of anodyne observation that history matters. We're trying to really take seriously the fact that contemporary arrangements are not somehow the result of natural uh, market forces. They're the product of previous cycles of political contestation. And, and as such, they you know, reflect, but they also of course reproduce and in many ways reinforce many of the power asymmetries that those previous battles uh, generated you know, and that endow certain kinds of actors uh, with enduring advantages uh, over others. So the way that we have kind of come to think about how to summarize our approach is that uh, is in its focus on what we are calling metapolitics. So, you know, a lot of contemporary American mainstream research is really focused on mass politics, what we think of as, what we're kind of thinking of as sort of the last mile politics, all of the kind of electoral maneuvering and policy wrangling that is most visible and that's actually most openly contested. Um, whereas we would like to draw attention to the really enormously consequential politics that led up to these more visible uh, choice points, right? So paying attention to these, uh, these uh, previous conflicts and the legacies of these previous conflicts that really shape the terrain on which these last mile politics are getting uh, played out. But also, and I would say equally important, we're trying to pay attention to the strategic maneuvering uh, of the most powerful actors and how that weighs on the choice sets that we face at any given uh, moment. So we're focusing on these processes of institution shaping, agenda setting and venue arbitrage or venue shopping that we think have a really profound uh, impact on politics. So all of these are hugely consequential, but they're virtually invisible because they form the sort of background or starting point uh, for contemporary politics. And as such, they're kind of taken as accepted or natural or sort of taken for granted features of the, uh, of the political landscape. These are the features that we think a lot of mainstream American work is not that well equipped to answer or to, to even capture, um, not least because Americanists tend not to you know, compare the US to any other system. Um, and because you know, these are precisely the features that only come into view uh, if you're situating the American case within a broader uh, comparative perspective. So applying this kind of lens, 
uh, brings us to highlight three features of the American political economy uh, that we think are both really distinctive uh, and actually enormously uh, consequential. And so these are the three features that are highlighted on this screen. And I'm gonna say a word about the first point on fragmentation, and then I'll turn it over to Paul to talk about the second and third points about race and uh, econ uh, organized economic interests. But on the first point, you know, one of the ways in which the American political uh, economy really stands out is for its extraordinarily fragmented political economic landscape. Right? The US is characterized by a really extreme separation of powers uh, at the federal level, including uh, a, a really unusually uh, powerful, but also highly politicized uh, judicial branch. And as such, it contains a huge number of veto points and that, of course, has enormous implications for politics uh, and for policymaking because this status quo bias really works to the advantage of precisely those actors who want to block change because they already occupy a privileged position either in the market uh, or in politics. And this is, of course, goes back to Jacob Hacker's, I think, really powerful concept uh, of drift. But this fragmented landscape doesn't just block change or prevent change. It also acts as a powerful filter that really privileges certain kinds of actors over other kinds of actors. And who it privileges, of course, is organized political actors that have abundant resources, that have a very long time horizon, and that can actually maneuver effectively uh, across this entire multi-venue uh, landscape. Then beyond this, the US also features a really high degree of vertical fragmentation, right? Including uh, a form of federalism that really decentralizes authority, but without a whole lot of coordination uh, or revenue sharing. And that of course invites all sorts of uh, venue shopping by the most powerful actors. Uh, and it's also a system, as you see on this slide, that much more than other countries delegates really important issue areas to local governance. Um, and that has really encouraged opportunity hoarding uh, and has contributed among other things to really extremely durable space-based uh, racial inequalities. Uh, and with that, I'll hand off to, uh, to, hand off to Paul. Great, uh, I think you need to unshare Kathy. Uh, they were great. Um, that me? Yes. Okay. Uh, how do I make that bigger? Sorry. Okay. Um, I feel like this should be bigger on my screen. Can you guys see the slides reasonably well? Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So um, good morning from here. Um, and um, I really wish I really wish I, I could be there with you guys, not just not just virtually, but in person. I miss London. Um, I miss the LSE. Uh, but it's great to have this opportunity to talk a little bit about this project. And I want to keep this uh, really short because I think we're most interested in hearing people's reactions and, and questions. Um, just um, to emphasize two points uh, at the outset, um, which are ones that Kathy has already touched upon. Um, the first is, is to acknowledge that this 
that this broad project that we're involved with and this volume itself, I think it's fair to say that they're primarily aimed at an audience of American political scientists. Um, it is a really shocking thing to see the way in which issues of political economy essentially have been sidelined um, by mainstream scholars of American politics. It's a cautionary tale. If we had more time, we could, we could talk about how that happened, why that happened. Uh, but I sometimes say um, that American political scientists know more about the German Employers Federation, thanks to people like Kathy, um, than we do about the American, the US Chamber of Commerce. Um, even though the US Chamber of Commerce is extraordinarily powerful, and we have literally thousands of political scientists studying the American political system. Um, so something has gone seriously amiss here, and we are, are trying energetically to get um, students of American politics to, to think more broadly about their subject matter. And that brings me to the second point, which is I think in addition to just a, a substantive focus on the kinds of issues that we focus on in this book, uh, we, we have a very different conception of power. Um, underlying our analyses than the one that I think is um, uh, typically typically advanced or is just implicit in a lot of work that goes on in American political science, nicely captured by uh, what Kathy referred to as last mile politics to focus on just you know what happens at, at the very end of a very long process. And uh, my favorite quote for capturing this comes from uh, the American political scientist E.E. E. Schatzneider, who famously said, some things get organized into politics and some things get organized out. Uh, and in many ways, our, our inquiry is trying to understand what gets organized in, what gets organized out. And I, and I would add to that, um, what gets organized to where, right? So what venues uh, get uh, to deal with, um, uh, with particular issues? Um, whoops, lost my slides. I do not know what's happening here. Hold on just a second. Let me see if I can get this. That's not good. I think if you hit slideshow. There we go. There go. Slideshow. I'm not seeing the link for doing that. Um, shoot. Where am I going to find that? Well, you know, an alternative. If you can't find it, Paul, Kathy can do it, and you can just say, "Move on the slide. Move from slide to slide." And I, th I think I got it now. You got it. Sorry. Um, it's not actually doing this quite the way I want, want it to, but well, let's go to full screen and see if that helps. That, that looks better. Okay, um, so this is a slide that Kathy uh, started with, or I, ended with. I don't see it, Paul. You guys are not I, think it, it. I think it's disappeared. Right. Um, is it back now? Can you guys put it up? Yes, we can, but um, I don't know I why I'm having just uh, let Kathy go ahead and share from her end. And then just tell her when to move the slides. Okay. Can you yeah, do Mark, that, Kathy? Do you have my slides? Otherwise, we'll do it at our end. Kathy, you're muted, I think. Um, there it is. Yeah, okay. that's mine. But I don't know whether I'm going to be able to advance these slides or not. Let's see. If you can't, we'll do it from here. Okay, let's see if this works. Yeah, okay, somebody, okay. So um, this kind of uh, allocation of political authority uh, has um, 
has huge consequences. And um, David and his work with Nikki Lacey really got us uh, thinking seriously about this and particularly about the effect that it has on um, racial inequality in the United States and, and racial politics. And there, um, there are a couple of important dimensions of this that are explored in the book, and I don't, especially now I don't have time uh, to go into them here, but it's, it both uh, relates to the way the social provision is organized in the United States. We describe a doubly racially bifurcated welfare state. That's because the public welfare state of the United States um, has a pretty clear racial division in it with, um, with uh, minorities largely relegated, especially historically, to the, the means-tested uh, portions of the welfare state rather than the social insurance state. But then on top of that, as Jacob and other scholars have explored, uh, there's a private welfare state heavily subsidized uh, by, uh, gov by government through tax subsidies. And that private welfare state largely, um, largely designed around those in the most favorable employment positions also relegates um, African-Americans and other minorities um, to the periphery rather than, than the core of social provision. And then on top of that, the way in which um, so much authority is allocated uh, to local governments with very little uh, cross um, financial subsidization uh, creates enormous, enormous incentives for what's called opportunity hoarding and the flip side of opportunity hoarding, which is uh, what uh, Veshel Weaver and Joe Sauce have called race class subjugated communities. So the, the argument we're developing here is that um, the racial inequalities are constitutive of the American political economy and they are very, very deeply embedded. Uh, I'm not gonna talk about this slide. Most of you know, know about this, uh, but um, you know, one, one manifestation of this is just the, the stunning difference in um, incarceration rates across countries. And of course, this is, um, highly, highly impactful on, on minority communities in the United States. The final point that, that Kathy mentioned in terms of the broad themes that we were emphasizing uh, throughout the book is the impact of um, fragmented organizations, American um, economic organizations, much more fractured than is uh, the norm uh, in, uh, across the, the world of affluent democracies. Uh, and that is true both on the employer side and on the labor, uh, on the side of labor. Uh, and I'm going to move through this pretty quickly, but just to emphasize one important consequence of this is uh, that having fragmented, in many cases, weak organizations uh, is going to interact with our multi-venue politics. The fact that political authority is dispersed so widely uh, and uh, so you, the capacity of groups to operate effectively in multiple venues and to coordinate their activities across multiple venues makes an extraordinary difference. Uh, this is very difficult for labor to do in the American context. It's easier uh, for uh, employers to do, not pandering, but there is a wonderful chapter uh, by Kathy and Sabil Rahman in the book, uh, the first of its kind really that that tries to explore the impact of the courts on the American political economy. And that, that little graph in the bottom right corner of this slide um, basically is the win rate uh, for employer interests uh, at, the, at the Supreme Court um, over time. And as, as they outline in that paper, there's been a very concerted effort 
uh, to tilt and, and concerted and successful effort uh, to tilt um, the legal environment, which is, of course, extremely important in the American context, uh, more and more in favor of business over time. Uh, so that's just one example. I think, you know, one of the most tangible examples in the book of, of how we try to pursue this um, meta politics um, and really think about how the fractured structure of American institutions and American interests uh, leads to particular dynamics over time. And just to give you a little bit of a feel, we're having to go through so much material so, so quickly. Just going to mention um, uh, four of, uh, of the contributions to the volume. Uh, there's a wonderful paper by Kelly and Morgan, which tries to explore how that veto-ridden system that uh, Kathy described uh, leads, to, leads to high inequality um, and, and, and gridlock at the national level. A wonderful paper by Jessica Traunstein, uh, which uh, looks particularly focused on, on local political economy and this idea of, of opportunity hoarding uh, and its, its flip side of these race class subjugated communities, how that developed in the United States. Uh, Jacob, uh, Jake Grumbach and I have a paper on what we call red state political economies um, in which uh, we try to explore why um, even as Republicans have gained power in many states, they have pursued policies uh, that have left uh, their states uh, gasping for air, in many cases falling further and further behind um, economically. And finally, two papers on the knowledge economy, one by um, David Soskis and one by Lucy Barnes, um, which explore uh, the threats to the American knowledge economy uh, that come out of um, the kinds of dynamics that are, that are introduced in those, uh, in those other three papers. Um, not gonna have time to talk about this. Maybe we can get, it, get into it a little bit more um, in Q&A, uh, but I think there is um, evidence suggesting that where the U.S. had a huge lead, and, and David's paper explains why this was the case, the U.S. had a huge lead in many of the cutting edge areas of the knowledge economy, that much of the infrastructure, the social infrastructure that's necessary to sustain and further develop that knowledge economy over time is slipping um, in the United States. Um, you could, the, the dots um, on this slide, which I think, and at least on mine, you can't actually see it, but that's, um, uh, uh, college completion among those over 50. Uh, and you can see, which is sort of a, a snapshot of the past, right? It tells you, yeah. All right. They can't see that. And I, that particular slide would be yeah. great if they could. If you stop sharing, Kathy can share and show it. Okay. I can and, try to do that. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to. See if Just I go on to share screen and, and stop. Yeah, I, I'm not even getting the, um, uh, let me see if I, I'm not even getting. Um, I'll, I'll tell you what. Okay, now I'm out. Okay, actually, Kathy, just let the LSE events team just do it. They'll just run it, put it up and go right to that slide. There it is. Perfect. Okay, thank you. Thank That's you. so much better. Um, and I, I, I apologize. I'm not quite sure what happened with this. Okay, so. So the, the circles basically give you a snapshot of what things look like in the 1960s or 1970s, right? Because that's college completion rates among people who are now approaching retirement age. The triangles tell you how people are doing, um, you know, for, for younger cohorts now. And you can see that the, the U.S. was ahead with respect to the circles 
but many countries are now passing the United States in terms in, in percentage of college completion and, and, and several papers in the, in the volume try to explore why that's happening. Okay, next slide. And we're just gonna skip over this. It shows the decline of the federal contribution to research and development, same kind of story. Next slide. Okay, um, so uh, just a couple of things to close. Uh, and um, we, and, and I, I think it would be fair for comparativists and Londoners to wonder like, okay, well, what's in it for us? <laughs> um, and because, because really the project is designed to try to change the conversation within American political science and within uh, American political science discussions of, of the United States. But we do think that there are a number of important themes that are really important for um, political scientists more broadly, for political economists more broadly, and for comparativists to think about. Um, some of them are listed in this, in this slide. There's a lot of attention to the spatial dimensions of political economy, which are quite striking the changes in uh, the geographic distribution of economic and political rewards in the United States. Uh, we've emphasized this point about multi-venue politics and the, the importance of paying attention to, to venues that often don't get as much attention like the courts. Um, we have a very different take on how to think about the relationship between economic and political uh, inequality uh, that really draws on this idea of last mile politics. Next, and I think last slide. So for comparativists, I think, um, uh, first of all, we need a clear read on the American political economy. It's actually hard to do comparative political economy, we think, without having a clear read uh, on the American political economy. And the US, I think even comparativists too often kind of grouped together with other liberal market economies. And of course, there's reason to do that to develop these kinds of typologies but it can also obscure important differences within a particular uh, clusters of countries. And I think the more you look at the United States, the more you can see how distinctive it actually is uh, from a political economy like the British one. Um, and in addition, this last point, um, I think there are a number of themes here uh, which actually deserve more serious attention within comparative political economy, not just with respect to the United States, and so hopefully we can provide um, a little bit of uh, input, a little bit of insight in how to do, um, how to look at some, some of those issues better. Okay, so let, I'll stop there and um, hope we have enough time for some good Q&A. We, we, we do, we have plenty of time here. Thanks so much for um, to both of you for that kind of the uh, quick rundown of the book's core arguments, why they're important. Um, I want to uh, just welcome folks on the platform from Hong Kong, South Africa, Poland, India, Germany, um, Italy, Colombia, Canada, South Korea, and the UK. Um, so it's a, we have a, a, a great a group out there. There's questions are starting to come in while they're rolling in. I'm going to pose the first question. Um, I'm also going to invite my colleague, uh, Professor David Soskis, um, who is also one of the contributors, uh, as you mentioned in the volume, to add uh, his voice if, um, if the spirit um, moves him. Um, I, I actually have um, a number of um, questions, but um, 
I, I had a chance to read the introductory um, chapter, which is excellent. Um, and some of the very, you know, some of the stimulating chapters as well. Um, and I highly recommend the book. It's trending on Amazon for books out there, it turns out right now. Um, one of the things that the book raises, it seems to me, um, and Paul alluded to this in his presentation, uh, is why there is no vibrant political economy tradition in the United States. Now, one thing is for sure, I think, it's not for lack of interest or trying. I mean, one thinks back to the important work in the 1970s and 80s on the political business cycle, whether it's Tufty or Hibbs or, or others, or the important work of scholars, early scholars, I would say, in the APD, the American political development uh, tradition. And, but still, it's clear, as you point out, that the field is impoverished, at least relative to its CPE counterpart in Europe. And so the question I guess I have and would invite you to say something about here to address is, is why? What explains it? I mean, does it have something to do with ideology and the close association that political economy had at one point in the United States and elsewhere with Marxism that resonated in a different way in the US? Does it have more to do with the hold of behavioralism? Um, you know, that, uh, I mean, it has long exercised a hold on American political science, but I would say it spiked after the end of the Cold War since the 90s. And, um, you, know, uh, you know, I mean, what kind of explains its relative absence? I wonder if you could say, you know, just a few words um, I would just like to hear your thoughts about that. Um, well, maybe maybe I'll take that one, Kathy. Um, uh, so, I, so I think there are three things going on. I, I think the the first is that um, within American universities, you have a lot of students who want to study American politics, and so political science departments, you know, a, a third of the faculty are teaching American politics. And so that's just a ton of people studying American politics, uh, given the scale of the university system in the U.S. And so um, uh, what, what emerges out of that, I think, is an extreme division of labor. Um, so people study Congress or they study the presidency or they study public opinion. Many of them study public opinion. Uh, and so there's this tendency to kind of slice things up in a way that um, it really takes you away from the kinds of approaches that we're talking about and that are, that are conventional in political economy. Uh, the second thing I think is the behavioral re revolution and uh, the emphasis on data um, and you know, generating as much data as possible as kind of, as kind of the holy grail. And so uh, that, that emerges and I think becomes kind of a tail that wags the dog. And then I do think the last thing is this normative point um, that um, American political science scientists um, eager to maintain kind of a norm of neutrality uh, have um, retreated into a kind of antiseptic view of politics, which, uh, which actually doesn't talk about substance very much, right? So you don't talk about Republicans and Democrats. You don't talk about business and labor. You talk about parties and you talk about voters and you talk about opinion. Um, so this, all of this has an effect of, of both narrowing the subject matter and taking most of the substance out of it. 
Beth, you want to add anything? No, that sounds that sounds right to me. I mean, there has been a move in comparative political economy to sort of emphasize uh, elections and voting behavior, and, and there has been that move. But it matters a lot that that happened against the backdrop of a really already very well established body of work that has the you know that looks at producer groups, and so it sort of by its nature starts with that and then moves into the electoral uh, into electoral politics from a very different. Uh, from a very different vantage point. And so I think that, you know, there is a lot of people are talking about a, sort of the Americanization of European uh, uh, political economic research. But I think it's really different because the starting point is so is so different. And because we do have, I mean, comparativists start with this notion that organized interests are a part of the of the landscape that you can scarcely uh, that you can scarcely um, scarcely ignore. So it it ends up uh, it ends up in a very different place, even even if there are some uh, overtones of in that direction now. I think. Great. So we've got a, a number of questions um, coming in. David, is there anything you want to add to that? Um, okay. Let, let me just say one one thing. For for me, working working with the editors was the most mind. I mean, I don't I don't think they knew that they were blowing my mind. <laughs> but uh, I was I was shaken shaken all over the place by having by having to to, to thinking about the United States and it it really emerges that that the United States system this called complex of systems works so differently from all the things I'd been working on in the in the past that. Um, yeah, well, I just like to thank Kathy and Paul since they're here very, very much indeed. And uh, go, go and buy the book. <laughs> so look, I'm going to turn to some of the questions that are coming in. I'm actually going to put three of them to you in a in a bundle right now. One is is from um, Avram uh, Libanow, who's an MSc student um, in political science and political economy uh, here uh, at the LSE. Um, how would you characterize, speaking of, I, I suppose, venues, um, how would you characterize the role of the media in the context of your different zones of influence and forums of political economy? So a question about, about the media and how it fits into your template. Uh, from another LSE student, uh, Fabian uh, Kraken, um, a, a, a current contemporary uh, issue. How would you explain the current situation in Congress regarding the two Biden packages, especially thinking of the left-wing Democratic Party, AOC, voting against the first package and what their incentives for doing so were? How realistic is it that the second package will be passed in, in Congress? So, you know, perhaps just how does the framework help us understand the internal politics that are taking place, let's say within the Democratic Party right now um, over these very, very large packages? And then finally, a, a, a challenge from a, a colleague and I suspect friend, Jonathan Hopkin. Um, this looks great. Um, and I think a, a, um, an EPE volume for Europe would be an important thing to do as well. My question, though, is about authoritarianism. 
Does the increasing threat to democracy from the armed right imply that we need to move beyond standard CPE of rich democracies focus? So the media, what's happening inside Congress with Biden's very large stimulus packages right now and what it reveals and whether it can be accommodated within your framework. And then a question about whether or not we need to be thinking about authoritarianism as well as democracy in, in doing CPE and uh, political economy generally. Okay. Kathy, you wanna start? I'll start. I'll start with the with the question about uh, on media. So that's an element that didn't. Uh, there was so there are so many aspects that we should have and could have dealt with in a book, but there's there like there are a couple of things that we sort of had to bracket, so to speak, just because not because they're not important, but because there's just limited uh, limited space. But media would definitely be one of them. But there is a you know. It's clearly a really important factor. I mean, I'll, I'll mention one work that is kind of in, in, in the in the uh, in the spirit of the work that we're trying to advocate, and it's a wonderful piece by Alan Jacobs, uh, among others, um, that really talks about the way in which the media amplify uh, and really report on certain aspects of the of the state of the economy to the expense of others, and in particular, you know, you have sort of constant drumming of, of, of how the stock market is doing. Uh, and, and, um, and so this is a, this is hugely emphasized in the media. And that of course affects the way that people think about, uh, about the economic situation and what's not, uh, sort of, uh, uh, sort of promoted or not, um, uh, talked about to the same extent, um, is of course things like, uh, you know, real wages in the United States economy. These are things that are simply invisible uh, to people. And so the, the sort of bias in the media uh, toward the, the interests of or the kinds of economic indicators that matter most to people, you know, to the wealthy are, are really amplified um, and influence the entire, uh, the entire discourse. I mean, there's a reason why uh, uh, Republicans are constantly, they don't want to talk about uh, and this is getting a little bit into the, the the Biden packages. They don't want to talk about the substance of any of this stuff. All they want to talk about is the dollar figure. You know, it's like it's all about the cost of this thing um, and what it uh, and how that uh, um, uh, translates in. That's you know going to translate into these horrible outcomes for uh, for the um, for the average American and inflation and so forth. Um, and not talking about the sort of substance of some of this stuff. But, uh, but Paul can speak more um, authoritatively to, uh, to what's going to happen in Congress and, uh, and maybe also to the, to the populism question. That's something that we have been actually thinking quite a lot about. Yeah, so, um, so the question about, about Congress, and I don't, I mean, I, I will say, I think it's like 50-50 whether they pass uh, some version of the reconciliation bill or not. Um, but, um, you know, our, our analysis is not really pitched at that, at that level of granularity, I guess, I guess I would say, I mean, the thing, I mean, if you take a step back and think about what's going on, the two things that, that I would want to highlight is, first of all, it is extremely difficult to pass any kind of ambitious policy package, uh, in Washington, right? You, um, everything has to run through the reconciliation process because of the filibuster and because it is, you know, impossible that any kind of really expansive policies are going to be supported by uh, by the minority party. 
Uh, and so, and because of the structure of the U.S. Senate, you end up in a situation where Joe Manchin, a senator from West Virginia, a coal state that uh, Trump carried by 30 points or more, um, is the pivotal vote uh, in the Senate, right? So um, that's a pretty astonishing arrangement um, that, um, you know, that organizes some things in and organizes other things out. Uh, it, given that, I actually think it's, it's surprising that um, Democrats uh, have put together as ambitious a package as they did, even though I, you know, it may not pass at all. And much of the most interesting stuff uh, ended up on the cutting room floor because of, of one or two uh, Democratic senators. Uh, but I think there's an interesting analysis to be carried out about why um, why much of the Democratic Party seems to have moved in a significantly more progressive uh, direction since, say, say the Obama uh, presidency. Um, the only I, I, I agree with Kathy about the the media article. There are there are a ton of things that we do not cover in this book because it's just a it's just a, a, a huge topic. There's not much in the book on um, finance. There's almost nothing on macroeconomics. You know, there are, there's nothing on IPE, really. You know, there are a ton of things uh, that one would need to talk about. But we thought um, we thought uh, 15 chapters in an epilogue uh, was probably enough for, for a first take. Um, but I mentioned one other uh, media piece that I think is super interesting for thinking about this, which is um, this book, Network Propaganda, which came out a few years ago, Yokai Benkler, and I, I always forget the uh, co-author, and my cat has arrived, um, uh, but um, uh, it, it really explores the asymmetry of the media market and has actually a nice kind of political economy approach about why right-wing media has evolved in a different way than, than mainstream uh, and more and more liberal media, uh, and it's quite striking in their data. And th that gets to this last point about authoritarianism, um, uh, which is something I I, I think you're, the questioner is absolutely right to say that that is an enormously important uh, question. Is something you know Jacob and I our most recent book is largely on on, on this subject. There are, there are a growing number of political scientists are interested in the issue of democratic backsliding um, in the United States. Strikingly, most of them are not mainstream Americanists. They're, um, they're comparativists like, like Daniel Ziblatt and Steve Levitsky, um, or they're kind of more historically oriented political development scholars like Suzanne Mettler and Robert Lieberman. Um, but I think one place where, where APE has a really important contribution to make, as Kathy suggested, um, is in understanding the rise of right-wing populism and its nature. And I think there has been a tendency uh, within American political science to, um, to sort of set, set up the discussion of right-wing populism or Trumpism as a debate between what, whether it's race or economic anxiety that is driving this. And they put these two variables into a kind of a uh, a cage match competition and say only one of these variables can be the explanation. Whereas I think our view would be um, that, that the structure of the American political economy is very much um, uh, involved with both the generation of economic anxiety um, and the kind of racial resentments which are so prevalent in American politics. So the, the attempt to say that it's one or the other, I think is, um, it's just a false dichotomy. Great. So we've got a, a bunch of other questions here. Um, I'm going to group a few uh, again. Uh, one comes from uh, Harriet Ald, who's a sixth form student of history, politics, and, and economics. 
Would you categorize any other rich democracies to have entrenched racial inequality caused by the organization of powers or other factors that you address, address or identify in the book? So to pick up that theme and put it in kind of a larger comparative um, context. Um, a question that comes from um, uh, Stuart Wood, who is a member of parliament here. Um, and, um, and the question is, um, um, decentralized and fragmented political authority, um, you know, is often seen and seen by um, the first generation of varieties of capitalism writers as a source of obstruction to change. Um, and you echo this, but can decentralized plural sites of public power also be a source of economic innovation and dynamism uh, in the US through regulatory entrepreneurialism, given the multiple sites of power? I think this actually reflected this view in, in David's piece, actually, in the, in the volume. But you know, in any event, to maybe say something um, about that. And then I want to invite you, Paul, because you just flagged it. It was a question that was on my mind, but a student has picked this up. And maybe to just say a little bit more about it. Uh, Ruodi, uh, who is in the IPE program here, the MSC IPE at the LSC, asked a question, a Susan Strange related question, not surprisingly, I suppose, could you define metapolitics, could one, in relation to the structures of power in the world economy. So a kind of, and I think it raises a, a kind of, I, I would like to just kind of push that question a little bit because it, it also struck me when I was going through the volume. Um, I, I agree, you can't do everything, but there's really almost, there's very little about the world economy. And, and just to add to that, there's very little about geopolitics. And we know that both of those things, they're not the last mile, they're sometimes the starting, out of the starting gate in terms of shaping what goes on in the United States. So I guess the question is, you know, is some thoughts about, and you must have had conversations about this, like how, as you move the project forward, because this is a living, breathing project, how you hope to bring that into the project to, you know, kind of flesh out um, its the agenda that you've already set. So three very different kinds of issues for you, and we and we have six minutes, <laughs> so you'll need to be brief because I want to ask one final little question. Somebody posed it before we we close. Okay, Kathy. So I'm just going to take Stuart's question and um, and leave the rest for you. <laughs> um, I'll try to be very quick. First, hi, Stuart. Um, it's been many, many years, but it's nice to connect at least in this in this strange way. Um, so, but the answer to your question, yes. Um, and and David's class, uh, paper brings this out, I think, very nicely, and some of his other other work as well. Um, the ways in which decentralization and the kind of competitive decentralization that exists in American federalism um, can um, it can be a spark for innovation. I don't think there's I don't think there's any question about that. Um, in, and and so that's laid out in David's chapter. Um, and and I suppose it's it's still the case. Uh, but we we argue in the book uh, first of all that there may be a reason to to worry quite a bit about the declining support 
for innovation, that these kind of um, competitive dynamics are giving way to things that are more sclerotic, if you will, um, that, um, uh, that advantage entrenched, now entrenched interests within the knowledge economy that may not necessarily be giving rise to the most innovation. And at the same time that there are other really important trends in American politics uh, that, um, that are undercutting support for some of the key policy features that you need uh, to, maintain, uh, to maintain the knowledge economy. Yeah, so just a couple of words on the other two, uh, the other two questions, and maybe one additional sentence on uh, on that one. Just starting with that one, I mean, there are. I think if if what you mean is innovation in terms of sort of Brandeis's laboratories of democracy kind of innovation, in addition to to sort of technological innovation and so forth. That, that's where the, the, the particular variety of, of localism that we have in the US has some real really important limits. And they, you, know, you can see this in COVID where you have state uh, governments coming in and preempting uh, uh, local governments that wanna do something uh, sort of particularly progressive. And so we think that that's possible, but it turns out that it much more uh, uh, fuels kind of race to the bottom, deregulatory races to the bottom uh, in many in many cases. You saw this with, you know, the the advance of Uber across the United States, among other ways. Uh, on the on the you know, are there other places that have these entrenched racial divisions? This is one area that I mean, the U.S. has a particularly distinctive form of this. Um, but this is one of those areas where we think, you know, going forward, uh, European political economists are going to have to be looking much more carefully at uh, at these kinds of at these kinds of entrenched cleavages as well. I will say, on on some dimensions, on some aspects of this, the the, the appropriate comparator countries are not necessarily like incarceration rates. If you want to compare the United States to other countries on incarceration. You do not want to be looking at the rich democracies. You want to be looking at a whole different set of countries like South Africa and Brazil. And it's it's just it's it's really striking the way that we sort of by default look to the other rich democracies. And on some of these dimensions, particularly on that um, on incarceration, that's just not the right uh, the right set of uh, comparisons, and stuff, which itself speaks volumes about the American political economy. And then on. Um, Yes, I just on on metapolitics, there's so much more to be said. And in fact, there's probably another volume to be done. The US is just such a distinctive, uh, distinctive, it's not just the biggest uh, of the rich democracies, it's it's really a very distinctive one. And it's one that really sets the tone and decides the rules on a lot of uh, on a lot of important political economic decisions. Uh, Mark Schwartz has a wonderful paper uh, in the volume that talks about the way in which uh, sort of the United States sort of um, uh, sort of magnifies or, or sort of exports its patent regi regime in ways that really protect American business interests. Um, and so there's there's tons more to be said about that. Right. So we've got two minutes. Uh, I've saved this question. This is just kind of by way of giving you a last bite at, at, at the apple um, before we uh, conclude. It's a question from Don, John Newham, a London University graduate. So what would the founding fathers make of how political economy has evolved in the United States? <laughs> One of you want to take it home with that or both? Closing thought before we, um, we wrap up here. Well, of course, that, that is kind of unanswerable. Um, yes, of but, um, you know, I, I'll, I'll just, you know, 
Madison, you know, late in his life, wrote this very interesting letter in which he basically he looked ahead um, to a hundred years from when he was writing and thinking at that point, you know, the U.S. is it will be industrialized. Basically, there was no longer going to be a rural and agriculturally based country and going to be much more populous. And he kind of wondered aloud in that piece about how well the Constitution would work in that context. Um, and um, I think um, I, I think, well, so so, of course, there are many ways in which the Constitution has evolved. And but um, one thing that has clearly happened with the rise of much stronger political parties than they anticipated um, and with the emergence of something like the filibuster is um, the complete incapacity, I would say, of the federal government to really respond in any kind of robust way to challenges that it confronts. And um, people forget that the Constitution was a reaction to the complete failure of the Articles of Confederation. Um, Madison, Hamilton, Washington, all of them wanted a much stronger federal government precisely for the reason that they, they couldn't manage the political economy they had in the 18th century without a much more robust capacity for national action. Um, and um, so I, I would like to think that that is what they would highlight. Kathy, a final thought. We're in overtime here, and that's fine. Uh, just that there's one aspect, though, that is a is a is a continuity, and that is uh, some of these race based inequalities that were sort of baked in from the very beginning. So there's a way in which uh, Paul is right that there was that so much has changed and in ways that were unanticipated. But there's one that is just a a constant uh, in the American political economy, and what's striking is the durability. Uh, of this and, and and its ability to sort of survive massive changes in the economy and in and in politics. So, folks, ladies and gentlemen, we're we're going to leave it there. I want to thank uh, everybody for joining us on the platform. Great pleasure to have uh, an opportunity to listen to uh, to Paul Pearson and, and Kathy Thielen. Um, Paul and Kathy, thanks so much for uh, joining us to share your thoughts about the American political economy and how we should start thinking about it. Couldn't be more timely. Great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.